Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories, Web3 edition. I'm here today joined by a returning guest, Tushar Jain of Multicoin. Tushar, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's great to be back. So Tushar, you, you were last here a few years ago when I, when I did our, our last Web3 series. And, and I want to split this episode by talking about the past, w- w- what's happened the, the last couple of years, and then also going to, to what's next. And so, you know, some people say that you can define uh, the space in terms of narratives and, and, you know, one way in terms of identifying what's going to happen in the future is, is evaluating what's happened in the past and seeing what, you know, what, what trends or patterns we can draw from that. So, so when I look at the, the world in terms of what's, what's gotten hot or what's, what's taken off in different times, I think of, hey, there was DeFi summer, then, then it was NFTs, then there was a DAO moment, then it was, um, you know, uh, play to earn, th- th- then it was metaverse. Then it, then it was back to NFTs for a little bit, and, and meanwhile, there's, there's been sort of the L2 um, wars, um, and you know even even L1 as well. What would you add or edit to to, to that sort of um, you know narrative compilation? Or, or, or when you look back, let's say for if people um, you know who who haven't been as active in the space, how, how do you sort of like make sense of hey what what gets hot and why at any given point in time? And how do you think about that as an investor? So I actually have been working on a thesis around this. I've been thinking about this for a while. My thesis, at least working thesis, is that every time we discover a new token distribution mechanism, it kicks off a bull market. So the data points that I have are um, 2013 was really driven, in my opinion, by the proliferation of proof of work coins. And there being many proof of work coins because it was proven at that point that like, hey, this Bitcoin thing like functions. Um, Then 2017 was ICOs. It was, oh, we don't need to just mine the coins. We could also pre-mine them and sell them. And like everything works fine, like Ethereum did. Ethereum is like almost entirely pre-mined. The the total supply, like 90% of it was pre-mined. And like, it's fine. Then I think the next one was um, around these launch pads, like Binance Launchpad uh, in 2019. If you remember in early 2019, we had a nice little run. I think it was really catalyzed by, oh, we can't do ICOs anymore, but we can do IEOs, which are different. Uh, then we had DeFi summer in 2020, and DeFi was all about liquidity mining. Now. I would say that most of liquidity mining was extremely poorly designed and incentivized a lot of wash activity, but it was a new mechanism of getting tokens into the hands of people for doing different things. And that kicked off, I think, the 2020 market. I think 2021 was kicked off by NFTs. NFTs are just a new token distribution mechanism. They got a bunch of new people into crypto that you know previously weren't in crypto, people who want you know NBA top shots or other um, interesting IP. Then I think we had, you know, this next kind of hazy level of like metaverse lands and, and, and such. That that was tougher. I, I don't know if it was like entirely a new mechanism. It seemed a lot like ICOs to me, but um, it, it wasn't as powerful. And I'm looking forward to the next one, which I think will be proof of physical work. 
I think it will be, you know, paying people for doing real work, not just like the play to earn captcha solving of Axie or something. Cause like the, those play to earn things, like they're not creating anything of real value right now. And I think that what we've learned is you can pay people with tokens to create things of real value. And I think that's going to be probably the next big catalyst. Uh, let's say that's true. And, and it becomes even bigger than, than, than you imagine. Um, paint a picture of, of how the world looks different. Like what are some, um, you know, a- applications uh, that, that you, you know, or use cases that you see taking off? The first one and the one that inspired this whole thesis was Helium. We invested in Helium first in 2019. Everyone thought that we were nuts. They're like, what are you doing? Um, th- this is crazy, um, right? Basically no one else saw it. No one wanted to invest. Um, but what we saw was a way to use tokens to coordinate people to do something that had previously required a large corporation, right? Um, so for your listeners who aren't familiar with Helium, Helium is a blockchain powered business model for deploying and managing wireless networks. Uh, if you look at how traditional wireless networks work or wireless uh, tele- telecom companies work, you have AT&T, Verizon, Vodafone, whatever. They have a committee who sits there, decides where all the radios are gonna go. They then go rent those towers or buildings. They buy the really expensive radios. They hire all the people to go out there and install them and maintain them. And it's just extraordinarily capital intensive. Helium flips that on its head and says, oh, this is just a big coordination problem. What if we can create a game that retail can play by putting up hotspots that can you know, beacon and challenge with each other and interact with each other to prove coverage and earn tokens for doing so in order to create the supply side of a wireless network in order to you know, have that there so the demand side can show up. So I would imagine that being a top 10 asset uh, in the world where I'm right, uh, because... It's just such an absolutely enormous market. Everyone in the world who's connected to the internet, you know, usually gets a, a wireless subscription. Many people don't even have home internet. They just have a wireless subscription in a lot of parts of the world. So, it's, I mean, this is a trillion dollar market annually. So I think, that, you know, that, that becomes really big. I respect other um, things that we've invested in in that similar thesis, things like Hive Mapper to also get very large. Um, and we're actively looking for more proof of physical work um, projects. I've been looking for something around a decentralized energy grid. Um, I haven't really found anything exciting yet. So we haven't made any investments in that category just yet. Been looking for other coordination problems where you know we are relying on a centralized authority to deploy some infrastructure that could possibly be deployed better by people being coordinated by tokens. Yeah, totally. If we're sitting here, as, as we probably will be, uh, two years from now, reflecting back on some of these uh, other narratives, or, or as you as you you described it, you know, certain liquidity models that that, that take off or, or token models, just like we we did the past two years. Besides proof of uh, physical work, what, what's another one, or what what are other ones that come to mind for you that haven't yet quite taken off or haven't been envisioned yet, but that, that you see um, have potential? Uh, another one that I've been spending a lot of time on recently, personally, is a, a thesis I call data DAOs. This is actually similar to proof of physical work. They both come from like the same underlying thesis of, you know, what are tokens good for? They're good for aligning incentives and coordinating people who may not otherwise trust each other. Uh, And so 
Proof of physical work obviously has a physical component to it, right? It's in the name. You have to put up a hotspot. You have to put a dash cam in your car for HiveMapper, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, data DAOs is the digital manifestation of that. So I was thinking, you know, similarly to the, the proof of physical work thesis, like what is something that we can all do digitally and it's worth a lot, but if one of us does it, it's not worth very much. And the reality is like my data alone, not worth a lot. Your data alone, not worth that much. But if I can put together a database with 100,000 or a million people's social media data that is joined at the individual level with their e-commerce data, their search data, their location data, um, et cetera, et cetera, and then anonymize that and allow advertisers to train on it or hedge funds to train on it, et cetera, like that is an extraordinarily powerful data set. And you want the value to then flow back to the people who actually contributed the data. Right. This goes back to, you know, um, there's this idea. I don't know. I don't know if you remember uh, this guy, Andrew Yang. He ran for president um, recently. He ran for mayor in New York. But he had this idea around data dividends uh, where he talked about how our data is so valuable, yet the people who make money off of it are like Zuckerberg and, you know, Google and, and like these giant corporations. And we don't see a dime of it. So I've been thinking, like, how do we coordinate a bunch of people to pool their data together and then actually earn based on, like, how valuable their data is and not just let those profits accrue to these rent-seeking middlemen? Yeah. Do you have have a sense for what a first, like, will it be around social networks? Will it be around something else? Or, like, what do you think are the first applications for data DAOs that might resonate? I think the first applications are, are what I was saying before, get as much data as you can. Social media, come, like join join social media tables across all the different social networks and then join that with financial data and anonymize that there is, is extraordinarily powerful in and of itself. Like if you can add in the device and the location data like that, that even helps further. But I think just those two things joined together is really powerful because you can, there's a big alternative data industry out there you can go out there and you can buy credit card data or you can buy, you know, some anonymized social media data. But the problem is you're buying it. It's anonymized at the data set level. Uh, and you can't then join those tables afterwards. It's, it's actually impossible. Otherwise, you know, they did a really bad job anonymizing. So here, being able to join the tables together and then anonymize is, I think, a game changer. And I think the first two use cases will primarily be advertisers. Uh, who want to target ads better, or hedge funds who want to use this data to predict asset prices. And I think both of the, like, that's a, two very, very large markets. Um, so I think it'll take a while to satisfy those markets before smaller markets are tackled. Totally. I, I want to talk about smart contract platforms because you, you guys have had a bet for a while. Let's see if I can describe it correctly, which is basically this idea that um, Ethereum is not prioritizing relative to other things, um, scalability or, or, or usability or experience in the, or, you know, getting, um, you know, millions of, of users of, of the next users in, in the way that they should be. Maybe they're focused too much on decentralization or, or other trade-offs and that there's going to be uh, other, another platform that just focuses on that or that prioritizes that. And your fir- first bet, you know, EOS or EOS d- d- didn't work out, but the, but the next bet Solana, you know, uh, more than worked out. Um, and so one, would you edit anything in terms of that, that thesis? And two, where are we going forward 
I, I just saw in your interview with Packy that he asked you guys about, you know, how many smart contract platforms will, or L2s will it be going going forward? And and you, and you guys almost had a difference of, of opinion. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if, that, if that's the case, but I'm, I'm obviously you guys agree on a lot, lots of things. But I'm curious if you could un unpack that a little bit as well. Uh, yeah, so I would say, you know, your, your assessment is correct. Our viewpoint has been that Ethereum has been focusing on decentralization for decentralization's sake. And they've gone past the point of diminishing returns to decentralization. We have to remember that decentralization is not a goal in and of itself. It is a means to an end. And we must question, what is the end that we care about? In my opinion, that end is permissionless access, which is sometimes also called censorship resistance, and it's credible neutrality. Those are the two things that matter. And I think that that can be achieved with a minimum necessary level of decentralization without having to go too far. Because whenever you're building things at the very cutting edge of technology, you're at this Pareto frontier and all these things have trade-offs. There's no one right answer. One thing is not gonna be better than the other. You are trading off some attribute in order to get the other thing. And so Ethereum is explicitly choosing to trade off having cheap transaction fees and having more people access the system, you know, being more scalable in exchange for more decentralization than I believe is necessary. Um, and I think that that has hampered their, their progress, in fact. Uh, I, I think that's why ETH2 isn't coming out. Like they changed it, you know, now, now they're like, oh, don't call it ETH2 anymore. We don't want to call it that. We're just going to merge to prove a stake. It won't make the chain any faster or cheaper, but, you know, we'll stop like, paying ETH to miners, so that's good. Right? <laughs> it's not actually solving the core problems. So I, I fundamentally think that Ethereum is lost because they keep looking at big brother Bitcoin and they say, oh, I want to be a world computer, but I also want to be like Bitcoin. And I think that's just the wrong frame. Like, I'm sorry, Ethereum, you will never be as decentralized as Bitcoin. It's not going to happen in any foreseeable future that I can, that I can envision. And so trying to compete on that dimension against Bitcoin while trying to compete with Solana in terms of scalability and ease of use for regular people is really, really hard. And so they've created this whole like complex system of, oh, well, we'll have layer twos that will all bridge to each other. And like the wallets will automatically figure out where they're supposed to point to. And your assets are on this shard versus my assets are on that roll up. And like somehow it'll intercompose. And I think, you know, in theory, this all sounds plausible. But then you talk to any engineers who are not just researchers who actually have to like build this stuff. And they're like, I have no idea how any of this is gonna be implemented. It's gonna take us a decade to like even potentially figure it out. So I think our perennial Solana thesis um, is that social, that technical scalability creates social scalability because you just want to simplify the system. You want to give people a simple shelling point to rally around a system that can work at you know that level of scale and people don't have to figure out all this complex l2 stuff and, and all these other pieces as to how i think the ecosystem will eventually evolve my expectation is there will be a monolithic chain at the center of the crypto ecosystem that will be kind of like think you know like the biggest city right uh if you're a star wars fan you know this is coruscant all right it's the world city um, it's enormous. This is where, you know, tremendous amounts of economic activity happen because DeFi needs that. You can't shard an order book. That's a nonsensical phrase. No one's like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll go to the order book with the sixth best, best offer. Like what? Uh, is that a joke? Uh, right? Like you can't shard an order book. 
we believe that order books are the way to clear risk. Uh, there's a reason why almost all of the trading volume in the world trades on order books. It's because uh, you know that is how people know how to trade risk. That is the that is the right primitive to trade risk. So I think that activity lives on this giant monolithic chain, the croissant of chains, right? And then I think you have bridges to lots of smaller app specific chains, right? Like if you're building a, a game that has some tokens involved in it or has NFTs involved in it, that can live off in its own zone, right? It can be a Cosmos zone. It could be, um, you could run your own Solana fork. You could have a roll up, uh, you know, using EDM somewhere, you could use an avalanche subnet, uh, Polygon supernet, you know, any of these things all bridge back together. But I think the vast majority of the value will be captured in that world city, in that you know big base layer, which is where everything basically settles down to for the ultimate place where risk clears. Like what is going to determine who is gonna be that major player? Oh, that is such a good question and really hard to answer because the reality is technology is path dependent. The best tech does not always win. Um, there's, there's a lot of nuance to, you know, just like what caused Windows to win. Uh, back in the day. Now Mac seems to be making uh, quite a comeback, but it's a duopoly. You know, what caused iOS to really take off, um, right? Um, so I think what will matter is probably a single variable. I think usually when it comes down to these really complex things, it, it's, it usually comes down to one thing. And I think it's going to come down to ease of use. I think it just needs to be easy for regular people to use it. You don't. You shouldn't need to be, you know, twenty four seven obsessed with crypto and keeping up with everything to use these products. You should be able to load up your wallet, do your transaction, and then go about your regular life and not have to think about any of this. Not have to think like, oh well, which chain am I on? What shard should I point to? I'm just imagining my mom asking me that question so she can send a payment to my sister or something, right? Like that's that's not how the future is going to work. Um, so I think the variable to optimize for is simplicity of user experience. Yeah. And if Vitalik were listening to our last 10 minutes or so of conversation or or take the smartest kind of, you know, person in Ethereum, if, if not Vitalik, where would they disagree? With, would they say, hey, um, everything you said is correct, but we're going to figure out this new technical solution that enables us to to do do both. Um, you went on both axes, or would they quibble with any of any of the characterizations that that we've we've discussed? What's your take? Uh, so, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Vitalik. I think he's one of the greatest thinkers of our generation. Uh, I've read everything that he's written on his blog uh, and, and learned quite a bit. Um, I think he would probably disagree with me on. Ethereum optimizing for more decentralization than is necessary. I think they just have different values on this. I think they're trying to build something that is World War III proof. And the way I think about it is like, if World War III happens, we're all dead. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't really need to build something that's World War III proof. Like, I, I just don't want World War III to happen. Right. Um, but like the internet turns off. <laughs> like, I, I, I just... You know, if you're going to try to build something that's World War III proof, like maybe Bitcoin over shortwave radios bouncing off the ionosphere going around the world, like maybe it, it works. But like really the only thing that's going to work post-World War III is like your currency becomes ammunition and like canned food, right? Like that, that's what's left. And so um, I think that that's probably where they would disagree 
is on the mission. Like, what are they trying to build? And I don't think we're trying, like, I'm not particularly underwriting, like, the ability of a platform to survive World War III. Right. And so Ethereum aside then, Solana isn't the only other competitor. There, there are others that are gaining steam. How do you compare? Like, what trade-offs are are, are they relatively making when you look at the, the you know the landscape outside of Ethereum uh, and compare Solana to some of these other ones? So there's a handful of other chains out there. Um, I think Cosmos is one of the most interesting ones because they have chosen explicitly to like not capture value in their native token in order to create a more valuable ecosystem, uh, right? So for, for your listeners who may not be familiar, the way that Cosmos works is that they open sourced their chain technology. It's called the Cosmos SDK, uses Tendermint consensus. Anyone can spin up their own chain with their own token, their own validators, and they never have to pay any fees back using Atom tokens or do anything touching Atom tokens. I think this is really interesting and we've seen a lot of tooling develop in this Cosmos ecosystem. And I think, you know, they have a really good shot of being the underlying technology that powers many of these app-specific chains in this vision that I was talking about earlier, where you have Coruscant, the main city, and you have, you know, all these other smaller app chains. I think Cosmos SDK has a, has a really decent shot. Now, we don't own any Atom because I don't think it accrues value, but that's okay. Like, you know, I think the team prioritizes changing the world more than accruing value, and I kind of respect that. The other approaches that I've seen are all like basically optimizations around the edge, right? Like you have Avalanche with their um, different type of consensus, but they're basically running the EVM with you know some modifications. I don't actually see that as a meaningful like difference from just Ethereum. Um, in fact, I would say for, for many of the chains, the alternative chains like Phantom is another one, right? Like many of these chains that are just like, EVM chains, I don't think they actually own the developer relationship on any of their developers. Their developers are Ethereum developers who happen to be deploying on Binance Smart Chain or happen to be deploying on Avalanche or happen to be deploying on Phantom at the moment. But they, the relationship is actually owned by Ethereum. Ethereum controls that virtual machine. They can change it, right? Um, so really those developers are developing for Ethereum. So I think in reality, there's only three ecosystems out there in like smart contract ecosystems. EVM is the largest. I think Solana is a close second now in terms of quality. Quantity, it's a, it's a bit less, but it's growing faster. And I think Cosmos is the third ecosystem. And I don't think actually these other things are ecosystems. They're actually just like subsets of the EVM ecosystem. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I want to um, circle back to something you said in an interview, segueing a little bit to, to DeFi. You, you mentioned, there's a question broadly is, how, how is DeFi and TradFi going to work together? And, and, and what is the, or the experience going to be um, for, the, for the user, the customer? And, and you mentioned that DeFi is going to be the, the backend. Um, what were the global backend and going to provide liquidity pools uh, or democratize liquidity pools? Why don't you unpack uh, what, what you mean by that and how you see that playing out? Yeah, for sure. So... I don't think that regular people will necessarily interact with DeFi themselves. I think that there are some things that you know people want from financial services that DeFi cannot provide, which is they want to be able to call someone and ask questions. They want a reset password button. 
right? Like they want some of these amenities that they've gotten used to. And like a significant majority of the world wants those things. And those are valuable things. But I think DeFi is enormously, enormously valuable because it enables these smaller financial institutions, a new FinTech company, your local credit union or savings and loan, a small bank in a foreign country to be able to offer the same products to their customers that JP Morgan can offer me or you know, Goldman can offer me. And I think that's profoundly powerful. Uh, the simplest example of this is the ability to offer dollars to people in countries that don't allow them to have dollar denominated bank accounts, right? Uh, so obviously, you know, you can build a fintech company and hold USDC, uh, which is fully backed by dollars in a bank account, audited in New York State, all that good stuff, right? Um, and you can offer that to people in India or Brazil or Argentina or Venezuela, wherever, where they want to hold dollars. Uh, and, and that's just like the simplest example of how I see DeFi evolving. But I imagine that it's going to then broaden to things like equities, right? It's actually incredible to me when you think about it, like most people in the world cannot access equities. Uh, I was talking to my cousin, uh, he's in India, he's an engineer, he works at you know one of the IT firms there. He loves everything to do with Google. He literally cannot buy Google shares because it doesn't trade in Mumbai and he's not wealthy enough to have a foreign brokerage account. But I can imagine, you know, when you have derivatives for any asset trading on something like Mango Markets on Solana, then you can have a local company there spin up a front end that, you know, lets you buy Google stock and then they go hedge it on the DeFi market because they have, you know, uh, the ability to do that, whereas otherwise they wouldn't be able to. And so I think that's where like most DeFi usage really comes in. I think DeFi becomes this back end, these rails, but customer acquisition, regulatory compliance, all these things need to live at the front end. How, how much of it is is just rebuilding the the Web two you know financial system or or, or pre existing financial system um, with just better you know better updated laws hopefully um, versus um, you know how much of it is skeuomorphic versus like net new um, stuff when you when you look at your open finance thesis and and what you you know hope to see going forward hope to invest in going forward how, how do you think about that? That's another really good question. I, I would say actually there's very little net new stuff. Like the financial products are the same. I think DeFi is about two things. It's about access and inclusion. That's really what it's about. It's about giving more people access, include more people all around the world into financial markets. I think that is the core of it. I think um, all these other pieces are enabling that access inclusion, but that's the core of the thesis. That's why this is valuable. Uh, these DeFi financial products are not new. Like we've had derivatives for a long time. We've had options. We've had uh, you know the ability to be a liquidity provider, quote unquote. Uh, like you know, if, if X times Y equals K was like a good liquidity provision algorithm, you know, like Jane Street would have been running that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for a long time now. Uh, so like these things are all have all existed. I think the main value of DeFi is just access and inclusion. So is it is a good sort of, you know, version uh, crude version of your uh, of the open finance thesis, you know, identify existing financial products that, you know, have have demonstrated demand and uh, are 
are, sub, are limited, but they limit demand. Um, you know, there are people who want access to them who can't get access to them and build DeFi versions of them. Or, and they maybe they can't get access to them because they just literally don't have you know access globally to them, or there's some laws that are you know pre- preventing or, or getting in the way, or um, some regulatory overhead in, in some way. Is is that a fair crude version? Yeah, it's it, that is a, a good version. I would add one more thing to it, which is making all of these assets programmable. I think unlocks massive design space of things to do. Now. This hasn't really happened yet, right? Like it's, we see the promise of it, but the example that I'm really looking forward to is if I can prove that I have held Apple shares for 10 years, that I get a discount on my Apple products, right? That would be a new financial product. That would actually be new innovation that is not possible in the traditional financial system because like DTCC is a joke built in the 70s or something. They probably use COBOL. Uh, you know, I don't know what, the, what their tech stack is, but it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's a historical um, thing. It's an anachronism now. And, and you just couldn't do it. But I, I saw this in um, 2020, in the meme stock revolution. AMC's CEO goes on uh, one of his investor relations calls and he says, if you show that you own AMC shares, you can get a free popcorn at every movie. So we, you know, I, I looked into it. They don't actually verify that because they don't have the tech. They can't really verify it because like how, right? Like just like the, your stocks could be held in like by JP Morgan in your name, right? Like it, it, as a custodian, right? Like, or, or interactive brokers or whatever, right? It doesn't work. But if you put these all on an interoperable chain and you can build programs, you can do lots of really cool financial products. Maybe, you know, if my apartment building is owned by a REIT and I own shares in that REIT and I lock them up for the next 10 years, I'm eligible for a discount on my lease. Or, you know, you can create these types of interesting products. I think uh, corporate governance could also evolve quite a bit because it's remarkable to me that, you know, you can vote on corporate governance issues in traditional finance and then just sell your shares. Like, that I don't understand. Is it like, shouldn't you have to live with the outcomes of the vote? So I would say that having the ability to lock up your your shares um, and get more voting power in exchange for that trade-off of liquidity would be an enormously valuable thing. But I think the reason why traditional financial markets don't have this is because they literally cannot manage the plumbing. It's It is literally an operational technical issue because there are plenty of CEOs who would want that. They want their shareholders to lock up their shares. They want long-term stability. They only want the long-term shareholders voting on board directors and voting on the direction of the company. They don't want the you know, fast money coming in, telling them to optimize for next quarter's earnings and then selling. Um, so I think there is a room for a lot of this innovation uh, once DeFi becomes much bigger through the programmability, but I don't think that's really happened yet. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so let's say it happens is, is a good mental model to, or analogy to use basically like the design space that, that social tokens or NFTs have, have, have created in terms of different ways of, you know, operating between, you know, sort of artists and fans or, um, you know, community, you know, tokens and community members, as we're seeing, you know, certain DAOs, are, are those good analogies? Those are good starting places. Everyone, it's just so early. Everyone's kind of still in the brainstorming phase, yeah. right? But none of these 
things have really uh, happened yet. We, you know, we need more regulatory clarity, honestly, before that happens. Um, I'm optimistic that we will get more regulatory clarity. Uh, I think uncertainty is the worst uh, of both worlds. So I think that will significantly help with that innovation. I think that people are playing with the right ideas, but once you start incorporating, you know, like real businesses with lots of cash flows into it, it can get a lot more exciting. Yeah, totally. I want to transition to another leg of your of your uh, thesis, which is uh, global state-free money. One question related to markets today, how should we think about Bitcoin as you tweet about this, Bitcoin as a hedge against in, inflation? Because that was, that was always the, the, the hope, right? But we, we haven't yet quite yet seen it. In fact, it seems correlated with, with the market. What's your take? I used to see Bitcoin as two things. It was supposed to be an inflation hedge or a hedge against monetary debasement because it's scarce and no one can change it. And it's a censorship resistant permissionless system. So you can travel across borders, you have your seed phrase memorized in your head and you can travel across, you know, you go anywhere in the world um, and, and take your assets with you. I no longer believe in the former. I don't see Bitcoin as an inflation hedge anymore because the reality is we have empirical data that shows that the traders and the institutional investors who are driving that market don't see it as an inflation hedge. They see it as a risk on asset. And I don't see how this risk on asset turns into a risk off asset. I just don't see how that, what that path is. Um, so we actually sold the last of our Bitcoin in the fund. We don't own any Bitcoin um, because it's no longer an inflation hedge. I think that the main narrative is broken. It's going to take a little while for the market to figure it out. Um, I think the property of being censorship resistant and maximally decentralized is quite valuable. But is it $600 billion valuable? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Does it provide the upside opportunity that I am looking for as an investor? No. I'm, I'm interested in productive assets. I'm interested in assets that create value and that create new utility for people. I'm not necessarily interested in, you know, Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics. I think crypto breaks down into these two camps. There's tech crypto and there's money crypto. And the money crypto people are all about, oh, you know, uh, monetary debasement and the government's going to take your, take your assets and like all this stuff. And I'm just not in that camp. I'm in the tech crypto camp where I'm like, oh, this technology is really cool. We can coordinate people to do new things that they couldn't do before. Like, let's go build. Um, not just like sit here and think about how, you know, the, the Fed's going to come seize all our gold or something. Yeah. Well, one of the things you mentioned in your previous interview is that what you're one of the reasons you got so excited about Ethereum initially is that you saw the path for it to enable internet native organizations that could, you, you mentioned that only three organizations hire over a million people or something like that, like uh, the government, army, or, you know, and, and Walmart or something like that. And un unpack that a little bit, like how, how are we going to have organizations that, you know, coordinate million, millions of people or like, what does that look like? It's a really good question. So I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. I think what blockchains enable with, you know, their scalable incentive alignment and coordination technology is the ability for small professional teams spread out all over the world to coordinate with each other, to compete against what have traditionally been top-down large centralized corporations. 
I think those large centralized corporations have a ton of inefficiency and corruption and just like loss. They're, they're, they're very lossy as an economic object, but they've been the best coordination mechanism so far because, you know, like, let's go back to that helium example. Like you need AT&T or Verizon or Vodafone or one of these things to decide I'm going to roll out a wireless network across the entire country or across, you know, the entire EU or, or, or whatever the region is, right? And you need that scale to be able to do it. But then when you introduce this coordination technology uh, of blockchain and tokens, you can have something like a Helium network where I know several people who have set up, you know, small teams, two, three people, and they own their city. So they have covered their city with coverage and they're able to use this trust minimized coordination mechanism to coordinate with the person in the next city to make sure that those networks are compatible, right? And to coordinate with the people in their same city in case there's any dead spots and you know, make sure that the end user always gets the best possible service. I think the same thing is true for DeFi, in fact, right? Right now, like TradFi is incredibly centralized and the rich get richer, right? Like if you want to see the order book for Apple shares, like you better be ready to pony up an institutional amount of cash because like you as a regular person can't get that information. You starting a new trading firm, you know, you get together with three of your buddies, you got a few million bucks, you know, maybe some seed capital, you're real smart. You cannot get access to the market information to compete. You just literally are not going to be able to. You need to be very large to pay the fees to the exchanges to get the data, et cetera. But with DeFi, it enables all of these small teams to coordinate. And I think that is much, much better. Uh, I think that actually leads to a more efficient market when you can have more participation, you can have all these other people competing on an even playing field will lead to more efficient markets, uh, which I think leads to more efficiency in technology and just uh, generally, you know, faster growth. You, you mentioned um, sort of the meme stocks earlier, and it, it's fascinating to, to consider that that was, that was the Web 2 phenomenon. And, and imagine with, with Web 3 tech, what, what, what type of coordination can, can emerge. Yes, I think coordination can become very different when it's uh, read, write, own, right? Like that, that's the promise of, of Web3. Web1 was read, Web2 is read, write, Web3 is read, write, own. Uh, and, and I think it can become really interesting. Like an example that I have that, that I think is quite relatable to um, the average person is a, a thesis I call Music VC DAO. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about the music industry and came to the conclusion that record labels are just music VCs, right? Uh, they do the same thing that VCs do. They go invest in promising young artists. They give them some cash up front. Uh, most of those artists fail, but the winners produce returns that are so large that they pay for all the losers plus profit. Uh, and then I looked at the idea of these investment DAOs Right, and like I'm sure you've seen a lot of these investment DAOs pop up, um, and generally I've been skeptical of investment DAOs because I think if you want to be an early stage like tech investor, the only way to earn excess returns is be contrarian and be right, and you know that's really really hard to do in tech, and like the wisdom of the crowds is just like I don't think effective at that. Um, you look at how many people laughed at like the Web two social media giants when they were getting started. Right, and imagine a DAO, you know, making investments. But now let's combine these two ideas together. I think the average person in an investment DAO is actually well suited to determine: Do I like this music? 
would I go to this person's concert? Would I buy their merch? Right? So what I think we can have are music VC DAOs where you have regular people serve as like talent scouts kind of. They go buy the token of some musician or buy some NFT by that musician uh, that entitles them to future bragging rights because they liked them before they were cool. Uh, it might entitle them to future utility. Maybe they get you know first dibs at concert tickets. They get to listen to the album early. They get to do other utility things. And in some cases may even entitle them to cash flow, uh, depending on regulatory considerations, where some of the cash flow from what that artist does actually goes back to those people who found them early. And so I think, you know, when you think about how do I make markets more efficient, I think removing the record labels as rent-seeking middlemen is quite powerful. And you can replace them with, you know, groups of curators uh, who are just, you know, big music fans or, or musicians themselves who are going out and creating the self-sustaining ecosystem. And, you know, that that's one way that um, that design space can be explored. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Chris Dixon talks about um, evolution of video game industry where they, um, I believe he describes it as they were charging for the game, but what they realize is that they should give away the game for free and um, charge virtual goods. And that there's there's these economies of of, of whales who, um, you know, most people maybe do it for free, but there's a small percentage of people who pay so much money that it expanded the video game industry significantly. Um, and the video game industry is way bigger than the music industry. And he's curious about this because the music industry it should be as large or, or maybe even bigger given how passionate people are about um, their, their artists. Like if, if we think about our favorite artists, you know, how much money have we truly given to them? You know, maybe we bought their um, music Although, you know, maybe, maybe not, maybe we went to a concert, you know, or bought a shirt still we're, we're on orders of, you know, hundred dollars or something. And these are, you know, people who've changed our lives who maybe, you know, if it's your favorite artist, maybe you'd pay a, a lot more money. I, I say that I, this basically ask you what needs to be true for the music industry to significantly enlarge. Like if we're, if we're looking at a similar transformation, um, you know, as in video games where the, the industry just, just, you know, two X's or three X's. How could you imagine that happening? Uh, I think we need to get rid of the record labels, basically, right? Like they're just too backwards facing. You look at how they fought streaming for so long. These are just backwards facing institutions. I think removing them and having the ability for new emerging artists to get funding from their fans directly and give them that coordination mechanism is the key unlock. Like that, that is it. That's the point. Because I, I mean... Like I, I know a bunch of like these young struggling musicians. I went to school with them. You know, a lot of my friends uh, decided to move out to LA and like start their own music careers. No one's been like terribly successful um, doing it. But I, I talked to them about this process and like, it's just so hard to get that first like 150 grand to like help produce your album and like pay for your living expenses and stuff. Like that's extraordinarily difficult to do. And so you have to go to these record labels to do it, or you know you have to hope that you have like a rich family member or something who's going to give you the money. But not everyone is in such a privileged position. But if we can give these artists the coordination technology to allow them to raise that money through their fans, I think that unlocks a lot. Um, and, and I think you know they don't want to go to the record labels; they just have to. So I think presenting them with a credible alternative is. The, the really powerful thing. 
to your point about how important music is, like musicians are some of the most culturally important people in the world. Uh, I mean, if you look at Twitter followers, like who are the most followed people on Twitter? It's politicians and musicians. And I think actual musicians uh, may have more. I think that the top person is probably a musician, um, though it may be Elon. I'm not sure. I haven't looked recently. Uh, but the difference between the monetization of the music industry and its cultural relevance is just a tremendous market dislocation. Um, and I think it's specifically driven by the record labels being backwards looking. Totally. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great response. Um, I want to segue to, to another topic that um, you've thought a lot about over the years um, and, and, and made bits in uh, stable coins. Um, what have we learned about the stable coin experiment? In the, in, in, the, in the last couple of years. And where are you excited uh, going forward? I think we have learned pretty definitively that uncollateralized stable coins do not work. I believe that with complete conviction and I very rarely believe things with complete conviction. Here's my logic. If you could make an uncollateralized stable coin work, that means you can print dollars without any backing which means you are now in charge of US monetary policy. This is clearly impossible. This, it, it, this is not how the system works. This is alchemy. You're sitting there trying to turn lead into gold and you know, like there's just not a physical process or a chemical process to do such a thing. It does not exist. Um, I think that algorithmic stable coins are okay as long as they're fully collateralized. So I'm a big fan of DAI. Um, you know, DAI has been stable for a long time. It's fully collateralized, over collateralized, in fact. And I think that's DAI's biggest problem is that it is over collateralized. You have to put in like $2 of ETH to get one DAI out. Um, and that makes it quite restrictive, actually. Um, and so we've seen that the demand for DAI has grown more than the supply, um, in fact. And the MakerDAO team had to allow people to deposit USDC into MakerDAO vaults in order to get die out, in order to just satisfy the market's demand for die. And like, that's clearly a problem now, you know, like if you're just gonna like wrap USDC, like you might as well just use USDC, like, what are you doing? So uh, we made a significant investment in a protocol called UXP. Uh, they have a stable coin called UXD, which is I think probably the most efficient way to do a fully collateralized decentralized stable coin. So uh, the way that it works is go long spot, short futures on decentralized exchanges. That way, you know, no matter what happens to the price of the asset, you always have a dollar's worth of that asset. Um, and I think that is you know, really valuable to get it to be exactly 100% collateralized. So you're not wasting collateral or it's not you know, so inefficient. So I'm pretty excited. It's very early days. Um, right? Like this is just the beginning of the experiment. I believe that's the best design. I'm looking for other designs as well, but I do firmly fundamentally believe that uncollateralized stable coins will not work. And I hope that we don't try this experiment again as an industry. Um, like too many people get hurt when you do it. Um, and you know, uh, unless there's like a particularly compelling reason, I, I just can't imagine it being worth the, the pain as an industry to like have all these regular people go put their money into like UST and lose it all. It, it's terrible. Yeah, totally. 
the um when you say you're, you're open to new designs do you, do you have something in particular or do you just say hey we may not have figured out yet and may, maybe there'll be new emerging yeah it's just unknown unknowns like i don't know what i don't know there's uh a lot of smart people out there they'll come up with new creative stuff and i i never want to close it off yeah. um so uh, always interested in learning one thing you've written a bit about and um and has been you know in the in the zeitgeist recently is um is block space what is the right way of like should we you know is bandwidth the right the right analogy in bandwidth or what's the way we should be conceiving block space and and what's what's important to to know about it or what's a mental model we should have it about i don't know if i would call it bandwidth though though maybe i would say it's a combination of, of a couple things really comes down to having state in this globally shared database and just having that state available is valuable and then being able to change that state is valuable. I think demand for both of those things is going to go up. That's what I mean by demand for block space is like uh, demand to have state that is trust minimized and credibly neutral and then the ability to change that state. I think the demand for block space is going to grow faster than anyone realizes. Um, I, I think it's going to grow probably by 100x in the next two years, maybe 1,000. Uh, and no, I, I didn't think about those numbers seriously. And I do actually believe it'll be 100 to 1,000x. And I know what those numbers mean. People throw around 100x, 1,000x like too lightly, in my opinion. Uh, I, I think if you look at the demand for block space over the past three to four years, uh, you've seen and just... It, tremendous uh, amount of growth. I haven't uh, done the calculation, so I can't say for sure, but I would say it's over a thousand X. And what are the implications of that? If it, if it, if it has that, that significant growth. I think it creates more room for composability because you have this giant amount of state that you can then compose with in a trust minimized, credibly neutral permissionless way. Um, and, and I think that that's probably the biggest outcome. And then we get net new, you know, things that we haven't yet, or just certain remixes, or just that, that's where a lot more innovation happens. That's where the space just moves a lot faster. Exactly. Right. Like, so think about it this way, like going back to the music VC DAO idea that, that I shared, right? Like now we're talking about this speculatively. It doesn't necessarily exist in production in any significant scale today, but now imagine a world where Music VC DAO has been around for 10 years and you have all of that state, all of that history is available. Then I can know that, you know, Eric, you're a great curator. You've got great taste in music. Turns out you find these bands really early. Now maybe, you know, that leads to more efficient markets once you find that person. Maybe that leads to them specifically seeking you out, right? Or seeking out people like you. Um, and that state is then delivering more value. Maybe you can tokenize that reputation that you have and create a brand, you know, doing something else around that where you're uh, a promoter, you help put on concerts, you know, that kind of thing, right? So like there's just like all this design space that opens up once you can prove stuff. And right now it's so hard to prove stuff in a non-legal way, right? Like the, the way that people prove stuff in the real world today is they make a representation and they sign a contract. Right. And I think being able to cryptographically prove stuff that then can be composed with um, is just such a massive breakthrough. And I don't know what all the things it'll enable. Right. Like, you know, we're sitting here. It's like, you know, 10 blind people and an elephant and I'm feeling its ear. And I'm like, it's a fan. You know, someone's feeling its legs. It's a tree. 
right? So, so we're still feeling it out, but it's clear that there's something here and that composability uh, will unlock a bunch of use cases that we simply can't imagine. I'll end with an analogy. Uh, I, I just want you to think back to your life before mobile, before smartphones. That was not that long ago. How long have you ever had a smartphone? Like maybe 14 years? Yeah. Like maybe, right? That, that's when I got my first BlackBerry and then I you know, quickly repented for my sins and got an iPhone. Um, and think about how different your life is because of all of the new applications and use cases and utility that that technology unlocked. I think that that is what we're looking at with blockchains as well. I think we are right in the 2012 era of uh, mobile where it's like the promise is really clear. A lot of smart people are excited to build. Uh, a lot of smart people are excited to invest, but you know, the apps haven't really gotten mainstream yet, you know, like um, not like they are today. And I think that we are in for a decade of tremendous compounding. I think this is the golden era of investing in crypto. Yeah. And, um, and it, that begs the question, you know, uh, is there an iPhone moment? What is the iPhone moment? Is it more of a collection of, of moments? How, how, do you, how do you make sense of that? It's hard to point to a single moment. It's not going to be like one moment. Even with mobile, it wasn't a single, it wasn't the first iPhone, uh, right? It was the first iPhone, but then you need the app store. Then you needed 3G for, you know, high bandwidth internet access. So, so you needed some of these components to, to come together over time. I think uh, we have some of those. I think the, the first thing that you need is a scalable blockchain that can handle a hundred million or a billion users. Uh, I, I think you need to be able to access, like have all those people access the system. Otherwise, like it, it doesn't work, right? I think you need data availability. I think you need storage. I think you need these Web3 primitives to really be there. Um, and I think we're pretty far along. In fact, I think that, you know, the first dApps that, that, are, that are really reaching product market fit are these NFT um, applications. You know, th these have reached outside of the crypto community to like, net new people, millions of people are coming into crypto because of this. Uh, and the reason why NFTs really took off last year is I think because the Web3 stack was mature enough for them to do that. So I would say we're in the midst of that iPhone moment right now. Uh, it's probably, you know, a year, <laughs> give or take of like iPhone momentness, um, but uh, hard to be more precise than that. It's false precision if you try. Yeah, totally. So, so in, in closing, you know, we're at, we're at a, a, a bear market and you're more, um, more, more bullish, uh, than, than ever maybe, um, how, how do you, how do you, how do you reconcile this? When are we going to start to, you know, to see it? I think that this market is not driven by crypto factors. I think this is entirely driven by macroeconomic factors. It's just a move, um, you know, towards the risk off part of the, the risk curve. Um, and th that's what's driving all of this. Um, in fact, I think idiosyncratic flows to crypto are quite strong. Uh, it's just the systematic de-risking of the entire financial system, which is causing this performance, which I think is a market dislocation, in fact. And uh, sophisticated allocators should be looking at that dislocation as an opportunity. And in fact, many of them are. Um, so I I'm quite excited about that. I don't necessarily have a time frame in mind because I think it's driven by macro things that I do not consider myself to an expert in. 
Um, I, I like to stick to things where I actually have an edge. <laughs> um, but I think about the world, you know, on a longer time frame. I'm thinking two years plus out. And uh, I'm very excited for the crypto industry, you know, in, in that time frame. And, and when you say market dislocation, are you referring to an opportunity for some of these, you know, DeFi and other things that we were talking about to to get more usage, or or or, or, or what were you meaning when you were referring to the market dislocation? Oh, I just mean that uh, all of crypto has sold off the high quality assets along with the low quality assets, and if you have the ability to differentiate between the two. Those are usually the best times to buy the high quality ones. Yeah, uh, it makes a lot of sense. You, you guys certainly have, and uh, and, and we'll uh, we'll do so in the future as well. Uh, Tushar, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks so much for for coming on again, and I'll look forward to the next one. Absolutely, thank you for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global dot VC.